It's the 11th of February, 2022. This is a Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Room Now podcast is brought to you by Room Now Live 2022, where you will instigate, invigorate, and debate all the hot topics in rheumatology. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about many things, but especially heroes in rheumatology. Who are yours? I'm going to tell you who someone put together as a list. Maybe you're on it. Gee, I hope so. Maybe in the future you'll be on it. No, I'm not on the list. Oh, well. Reason enough to keep trying and keep doing the podcast. Let's begin with a report from Daphne Gladman's group about the um, how quickly people respond to modern therapies in psoriatic arthritis. Two fairly large phase three trials done in psoriatic arthritis patients were active, who were randomized to receive either tofacitinib or adalimumab or placebo. And they looked at um, uh, meaningful clinical responses as measured by either patient-reported outcomes or other objective measures. In this study, it was pretty surprising that Patients respond quickly compared to placebo when they're on the active drug. And that means they respond with a meaningful response in 29 to 53 days. I put that out there because it's usually sooner than what most people expect. Most people think, well, usually you achieve you know, good responses by three months. What they're really saying is maximal responses that are plateaued responses are evident by three months, maybe four months. But the fact is, meaningful responses are evident much earlier, and that's what this study shows. And this should be impetus for you to consider seeing patients sooner and making earlier go-no-go decisions on the DMARD JAK inhibitor biologic that you've chosen to start in either psoriatic arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. I'm trying to do this. It's a hard habit to break. The CARA registry came up with some data about the risk of psoriasis in JIA patients who were getting TNF inhibitors. They had a lot of patients, 8,000 patients, almost 40, 54% had received a TNF inhibitor. And if you're on a TNF inhibitor, the risk of developing psoriasis from the TNF inhibitor was almost threefold higher than if you were not on a TNF inhibitor. Gee, that sounds horribly significant, but you know, the event rate here is low. Uh, we've published before, I think the most reliable data that says that the risk of developing TNF inhibitor-induced uh, psoriasis, the so-called paradoxical response, is about 1 in 1,000. And those of you who don't like that number, it's not much better than 1 in 500. So the event rate here is low and is certainly linked to TNF inhibitors. And no, we don't understand these paradoxical reactions that can occur. The Osteoarthritis Initiative is out there collecting data on patients. Uh, I think we have two uh, reports in this uh, podcast about the Osteoarthritis Initiative. Uh, one is a look at hand OA and how common it is. So amongst 3,500 participants, 41% had hand OA by x-ray. Symptomatic, clinical uh, hand OA, less frequent. 12.4%. Maybe more important, and we certainly know that uh, radiographic is very different than symptomatic and radiographic is much more sensitive, may not be meaningful. Having both, however, is meaningful. 
But in this study, over a four-year period, almost 30% of patients did progress. So they saw more hand OA in the DIPs and PIPs of women. Men had more MCP than did women. But overall, less than blacks, more on that later. A Scandinavian study looked at uh, the association between cardiac abnormalities and inpatients with inflammatory idiopathic myositis, idiopathic inflammatory myositis IIM or polymyositis dermatomyositis. They showed that QTC prolongation was actually not that uncommon. 16% of patients with myositis had QTC um, um, intervals that were prolonged. This was higher in patients who had anti-MI2 or PL7 antibodies and also who those who had elevated CRP levels, suggesting those particular markers could be used as biomarkers for those who might be at risk for cardiac abnormalities. Now, cardiac abnormalities are uncommon in myositis, but boy, when it happens, they can be devastating and it can be conduction disturbances uh, and can be as bad as, as, as actually heart failure. So I'm not a big um, user of myositis-specific antibody testing, unless I'm asking a specific question. I seldom order that kind of panel, but this kind of data leads me to believe that um, maybe getting MI2 and PL7 could be a smart move when first diagnosing someone with myositis. Psychosis appeared several times this week. Um, two reports in relationship to, lus- to lupus. So first off, it's actually quite rare in lupus. A retrospective cohort study of 709 patients found psychosis in only 18 patients for an incidence or a prevalence of 2.5%. Um, of those 18 patients, two-thirds of them remitted with either combination uh, with a combination of antipsychotics and immunosuppressives, including steroids. Others, the other one-third, were difficult to treat. And what did they use? Cytoxin, rituxan, usual drugs that you use here. The good news is, although we always talk about seizures and psychosis as being major manifestations of neuropsychiatric lupus, those two are actually quite uncommon these days. We see much more cognitive problems and headache problems and neuropathic problems. Another study looked at psychosis in um, 10,000 admissions uh, for psychosis. Amongst those, 15% or 20% were tested for ANA and 15% of those were ANA positive greater than 1 to 160. But only four of the overall 10,000 met criteria for lupus and only two uh, met criteria for neuropsychiatric SLE. The prevalence of ANA positive psychosis in those that um, were screened here was 1.5%. Again, really quite uncommon. The third report on psychosis looked at a general medicine population. This is a population-based study and showed a really, and this comes from the British Medical Journal, BMJ, showed that dementia was much more common when um, adults had evidence of multiple comorbidities in midlife, meaning prior to age 55. Two or more comorbidities um, prior to age 55 significantly upped the risk of future dementia. Uh, having multiple comorbidities after that or later in life did not increase the risk of, of dementia. So again, being healthy as a young and middle-aged adult maybe can ward off that horror of, of dementia, which is you know frustrating to treat to say the least. 
The New England Journal reported this week the um, uh, results from Qatar. They looked at almost 2,000 people who had previously um, proven, PCR-proven, diagnosis of uh, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. And they looked at the incidence of having an infection on the future risk of reinfection. Turns out that having the infection really protected quite significantly against reinfection, 90% Uh, protection against the alpha variant, 85% against the beta variant, 92% against the deadly delta variant. But guess what? The current one, the one that's kind of causing the fifth surge now, the the Omicron uh, variant, only 56% protection. Turns out that what you heard before, that if you were vaccinated and then got infected, that that also conferred better immunity and all those numbers went up but the omnicron protection only went up to 60 something percent if you again were vaccinated then got infected and whatnot so again this is all good news except the omnicron uh you know this tells you the more this infection goes on the more we're going to see variants that might escape the benefits of vaccination and all the practices that we have We may have talked about this at ACR, but what's the utility of MRI in diagnosing um, undifferentiated arthritis? When you get right down to it, positive predictive value, negative predictive value, uh, CCP positive or not, polyarthritis, monoarthritis, oligoarthritis, turns out it's a no-brainer, right? If you've got monoarthritis and with or without CCP, chance of RA is low, MRI is not going to change the story. If you've got polyarthritis and CCP, CCP positivity, NMRI is not going to change a picture. It's where it's living in the middle, meaning seronegative, oligoarthritis. An MRI of the hand may provide um, insights that would be predictive, have a substantial increase in the positive predictive value. So that might be the, the, the profile of someone you might want to do MRI of the hand. Me, I'm not doing MRI on almost anybody. But unless I have a specific question to ask, and usually it's about another disease or another possibility. So, but those of you who are MRI happy will be happy to see that particular report. A retrospective study of antiphospholipid patients, almost 200 patients, looked at the role of the non-criteria. Criteria, as you know, is, you know, thrombocytopenia, recurrent fetal loss, uh, seropositivity for um, antiphospholipid cardiolipin antibodies. Uh, we're talking about here things like um, uh, autoimmune cytopenias, uh, uh, antiphospholipid nephropathy, livid reticularis, CNS manifestations due to uh, APL, Lehman Sachs endocarditis, and maybe a few more. Interestingly, in their study, if you had these non-criteria findings in someone with APL, you are more likely to have relapse rate, re- 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 frequent relapses, 59% versus 34%, very significant, more likely to be triple positive serologically, and more likely to, to need more therapy or to have any therapy. So identifying those non-criteria looks like it seems to be a useful predictive tool. Um, Tahina Neoji and uh, Nicola Dalbeth wrote a nice article in Anthromatic Disease talking about, the title was, Where are the Women Heroes and Pillars of Rheumatology? And they commented on that. And they they got their own little list going. And I really like this list. This list included Professor Nana Schwartz, who actually discovered sulfasalazine and demonstrated its efficacy in 1938. 
Professor Gertrude Elion, um, who was awarded the Nobel Prize for her work in developing drugs like allopurinol and azathioprine. Professor Sai Fan Yu, uh, who undertook the first clinical trials of allopurinol in gout. Mary Betty Stevens, um, who was a pillar at Hopkins for many years. She was part of a, a big, um, uh, big in starting multidisciplinary uh, practices in rheumatology and led a lot of the early uh, research on lupus and vasculitis. Uh, Marion Ropes, uh, big for her early studies in lupus, including aspirin and lupus. She was the first female president of the American College of Rheumatology. And Professor uh, uh, Fionula Brennan, who was instrumental in describing the um, biologic effects of TNF inhibitors that further led to um, the development of TNF inhibitors at the Kennedy Institute and, and others. You know, they put out that there's, you know, a bunch of other contemporaries that are, should be considered pillars in the community and leaders in rheumatology. Deborah Simmons, Desiree Vanderheide, um, Amita Agarwal, Ellen Ginsler, Cesar uh, Ozen, Ellen Gravelis, Connie Wyand, Dame Carol Black, Bevra Hahn, Graciela Alarcon, Daphne Goldman, Michelle Petrie, Patricia Wu, Marina Bodo, uh, Lynn March and Betty Diamond, to name a few. We need heroes. We need big-time mentors. We need more who are women. We need more women rheumatologists promoting the heroes and the pillars and sticking up for them and really sticking up for each other. It's a big deal in rheumatology these days because rheumatology, as far as the providers go, is going to largely be left up to women. All the old white-haired guys are going to be retiring soon. That's what the workforce studies are showing. Hip fractures in the elderly occur at greater than 250,000 a year in the United States with a substantial mortality of 12 to 37 percent. During COVID-19, analyses of populations showed that hip surgery um, volumes for fracture and replacement went down substantially after March 2020. Um, and started to come back up after the vaccine became available. This is but one example of what I call the hazards of COVID, where everyone went into their foxhole, you know, um, uh, stuck their head in the sand, ignored health care, and there are consequences to this. Now, in this case, probably pain and disability were the main consequences. But what about not getting, you know, DEXA scans and not getting... Um, you know, mammograms and not getting procedures done that might have been life th life saving or chemotherapy. This has not been really well um, counted thus far. Orthopedists love to do hyaluronic acid injections. I don't know why the evidence of their utility in knee OA is like boom zero, but yet people do them. I, and you know, I, I get it. There's not a lot of great therapy for knee osteoarthritis. You know, we can't use narcotics anymore. Um, uh, it turns out that joint injections don't work all that well with steroids. That mean they don't, they don't have any sustained effect, maybe short-term effects. But despite multiple guidelines from multiple societies showing that hyaluronic acid knee injections don't work, the volume of hyaluronic injections in orthopedics, orthopedics went up from a, a million in 2012 to 1.2 million in 2018 and that's just amongst Medicare beneficiaries I don't know what they're doing I don't know what the motivation is oh wait it might be money but maybe they believe the data I, I, don't, I don't know what data they believe 
So um, we're going to talk about osteoarthritis in closing here. Hand pain, hand OA, um, reported this week to be related to obesity and inflammatory markers. In this particular study, it's called the NORHAND study that enrolled 281 hand OA patients. They did a lot of different measures of pain and measured pain in multiple joints. They showed that for every five units increase in BMI, significant increases in hand pain were noted. Also, significant increases, again, related to BMI and obesity were seen in other joints like the foot and hip and knee. So, uh, and then lastly, they also showed that there were biomarkers that were associated here too with higher pain levels. That included higher leptin levels. That's an adipokine. That's a pro-inflammatory cytokine. And high, and high sensitivity CRP levels were higher in those that had more pain, um, uh, especially in the obese. So again, we're starting to understand that uh, hand pain and osteoarthritis pain, while it may be mechanical and structural, there could very well be an inflammatory component there, and that should be part of our treatment regimen when at all possible. Again, methotrexate and DMARDs don't work in OA, do they? Um, so what are you going to do for treating inflammation other than non-steroidals, which you're afraid to use, low-dose steroids, which everybody's afraid to use? We need some research here, don't we? Do we not? Um there was an interesting report also from the osteoarthritis initiative this week about hand OA being less severe in African-Americans. So the osteoarthritis initiative enrolls almost 5,000 patients, 849 are African-Americans, the others being non-black. And using a propensity score matched comparison, African-Americans had less severe hand OA um, radiographic OA, erosive OA, and symptomatic OA to the tune of 30 to 70% less. And the question is why? Not so clear. And again, there's been a smattering of studies that have backed this up, but other studies that said that no, there wasn't any difference between um, blacks and whites, for instance, with hand OA. Is this uh, related to socioeconomic issues, access issues? Um, or is this, you know, just the differences in biology? You know, African-Americans do have a higher risk of hip and, and knee OA compared to Caucasians. Why? Maybe not unreasonable that they have less hand. Interesting nonetheless. So that's it for this week on the podcast. Go to roomnow.live to register for um, our meeting on March 19th in um Las Colinas, Texas. It's a 10-minute ride from DFW. Can't wait to see you there. Take care. Bye.